Father, when we consider the power of your grace extended to us in Jesus, as we survey his cross and upon that instrument of cruel death and torture, behold the price that was paid for our salvation. And as we look at the effects of this monumental work in the history of the covenant, where the sins of all the elect were atoned for, and heaven and earth were moved to reconcile a sinner to a holy God, or we are amazed and filled with wonder, amazement, and joy as we consider each of us our own salvation who have repented and believed. And also as we see the effects of your word going forth unto the nations, saving for yourself a people from every tribe and tongue. Lord, this day as we behold the source of your revelation to us objectively written down in your word, graciously preserved by your spirit through the ages, and then given to us, Lord, as a love letter, giving to our souls the revelation, the knowledge of you, and to our minds, Lord, the way of salvation that we might walk therein, to our confession, the truth of who Christ is, his salvation, and the hope of the gospel for all the world. Lord, as we consider these things today, I pray that you would be high and lifted up on the praises of your people, even as we have sung of you, now as we hear of you, May our hearts, Lord, find a suitable throne for the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that the preaching of the word might move us to confess our sin, to walk in the footsteps that he has prepared in advance for us to walk in, to be encouraged in the knowledge of the truth and the testimony of hope for all who would turn to him and believe in his name. And I pray also as we close this service in communion that that profound sense of unity and that restored relationship with you, Lord, in sweet fellowship, would be felt by all who are true believers in this place. Finally, we pray this morning as your word is proclaimed, if there are any lost in the hearing of the gospel this day, that you would draw them to the cross and draw them to their knees, that they would turn, Lord, from their wickedness, from their sin, their transgression of your holy law, and accept the shed blood of Jesus Christ as the satisfactory payment for their sins, to render them, justify them righteous and in good standing, before the perfect God and Father of our Lord and Savior. We thank you, Lord, for this time that you have prepared in advance for us. We pray that it would be multiplied for the glory of Christ, our risen and ascended, our crucified, and our ruling Lord. Thank you for this moment that we have, and I pray, Lord, that it would just encourage the saints and proclaim you to all the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord for the incredible privilege and gift, the gracious gift of being able to gather in the name of Jesus Christ to open up his holy scriptures and to consider the truths that are revealed to us on the pages of his holy word. Turn with me as you're able to 2 Peter chapter 3. Let us continue in the book of 2 Peter. As we move towards the conclusion of this epistle, we're reminded of the major themes throughout the book and the apostle ties them together so nicely and powerfully that the truths that he has laid forth to strengthen the church in the wake of persecution and in a culture of unbelief becomes something of a crescendo. And I trust as we read and absorb these truths that it will give us a growing confidence, a confidence that is stronger than the rebellion of our day. That was the effect of God's word upon the early church. 
they were smaller in number, they were greater in confidence than the enemies that they faced. Based upon the promises and the certainty of God's Holy Scripture, this is what gave them the sincerity and the stability to stand even in the day when their faith was challenged or even their lives might be required of them. The title of this morning's message from 2 Peter 3 is, What's the Difference? The difference what's the difference that is between two things, the scoffer and the sincere Christian? Peter draws distinctions. He identifies the difference between those who are scoffers, those who belittle, who make fun of, who dismiss, who ignore the truth of God's word, the scoffers. He draws distinctions between them and the sincere Christian. Sincere Christians are the audience of his second letter as well as his first. They are the ones with whom he is speaking, hoping to stir them up. The aim of this morning's message is to equip the church for discernment in an age of delusional unbelief. Peter's words have the power to encourage us, to equip us as the church for discernment in an age of delusional unbelief. That was what Peter's audience faced, and that's what we face as well, I submit, today. With your heart and your scriptures open, and then standing out of reverence for God's word as you're able today, listen as the word of God is proclaimed in your hearing. We have 2 Peter 3, 1 through 10 as our primary text. Listen now to the word of Christ. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the earth existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Verse 6, And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Verse 7, By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and when the heavens will pass away with, then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. This is the word of God. You may be seated. What's the difference between a scoffer and a sincere Christian? Peter's admonition to the New Testament church draws on perspectives in light of this concept in Scripture, quote, the day of the Lord, close quote. Have you heard of the day of the Lord? If you've been reading in the prophets lately, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the like, no doubt you're familiar with this concept. It is the appointed time in God's precise moment where a reckoning and a visitation of His sovereign power and authority and a court case, a subpoena goes out, and a summons all who, stand, who must stand before Him and give an account for their deeds must assemble. 
There's no ifs, ands, or buts, no exceptions. No one will escape the day of the Lord. If he has appointed his day for you, you must answer at that time to him. This concept is thoroughly expounded in the prophets. And Peter references the prophets in passing. It was key to arresting the attention of a self-centered and easily distracted people. A self-centered and easily distracted people certainly were not mindful of the day of the Lord. They're not living in light of that perspective. Peter exhorts the church to uh, not fall into this pitfall. Uh, that is, to be easily distracted and self-centered and to be uh, led astray by the values and the ideals and the idolatry of the culture that was rebellious against the Creator. Peter instead exhorts the church and rebukes scoffers in light of the coming of Jesus Christ and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Just as in the Old Testament, that reference or that term, the day of the Lord, signaled salvation or judgment, depending on the heart condition of the people. For instance, in Noah's day, hey kids, a question for you. For all of the world except Noah, the day of the Lord, did it mean that they were going to be saved or that they were going to be judged? The wicked world, the day of the Lord meant judgment or salvation? Judgment, judgment that's correct. Now how about Noah and his family? The coming flood, did it mean judgment or salvation? salvation? Salvation. What made the difference? The difference is the rest of the world were scoffers, but Noah and his family were sincere Christians, if you will. They were sincerely bound by the covenant promises of God in relationship to him. That was the difference. So it was the heart condition of the people that uh, distinguished between the day of the Lord's arrival as a moment of judgment or a moment of salvation. Peter draws parallels to this with respect to the comings of the Lord himself. Just as the day of the Lord signaled salvation or judgment depending on the heart condition of the people in Noah's day, so the second coming of Christ will bring final judgment upon all who failed to realize his coming unto salvation that Peter had both witnessed and now proclaimed. So Jesus, when he came in the incarnation to die for our sins, it was a coming of salvation. But he's coming again, saints. And living in light of this fact will keep us on the right perspective and equipped for the duty to proclaim him no matter the cultural and conditions that we face today. When Jesus comes again, it will be a coming of decisive, absolute, final, irrevocable judgment. And what makes the difference? Where your heart is when the Lord comes again. You'll be either caught into his presence by his miraculous second resurrection power, or you'll be cast with his demons after that judgment reckoning into the lake of fire and eternal perdition forever and ever, based upon your heart and its, its relationship to the Lord. Peter has witnessed and proclaimed the coming of the Lord as an apostle. A major theme in Peter's epistles will be emphasized again at the conclusion of this letter in verse 11. Our text next time we're in this book, since all things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Peter asks that question, otherwise state, or stated in other ways, like how then shall we live in light of these perspective-shaping realities? In light of, as we called it before, this reckoning perspective, what sort of people ought we to be? According to Peter, sincere Christians will be stirred up by the reminders that he is giving in our passage today. 
They are therefore, that is the reminders of Peter, of these doctrines, these teachings, these realities of God's purpose and intervention in history. These reminders are therefore essential perspectives, essential teachings to rally and encourage us, his church. Meanwhile, insincere scoffers will reject these warnings in their secular sophistry. Sophistry means uh, beliefs, ideas, concepts, philosophies that sound smart, but underneath it's just a mask for foolishness. That's what sophistry is. Smart sounding words as a mask for foolishness. We live in an age, as Peter did, of secular sophistry. That is man-made foolishness with a thin veneer of intellectual respectability. And that allows people, gives them the courage in their sin or gives them the brash boldness, boastfulness to scoff at the truths of the scripture. Peter has given us a prophetic, uh, uh, profile of false teachers. You remember this from our last chapter, perhaps. They are those who uh, Peter has listed as in, not only insincere in what they teach, but also deficient in character. Peter has used most of his epistle thus far to document and to give that profile of false teachers <coughs> and come, uh, in light of the deficiency of character. He has focused primarily on their shortcomings in uh, who, you know, the integrity of their heart and so forth. And now in chapter 3, his analysis continues. He not only refutes their character shortcomings or analyzes them, but he also refutes the worldview of the scoffers. Peter, the apostle, is calling all sincere minds. Calling all sincere minds. Pay attention and heed what we sometimes call the event oracles of covenant history. Peter warns us to never forget the reality and implications of three things, creation, the flood, and final judgment. And the term I like to use to describe events like this in Scripture is event oracle. It's an event insofar as it absolutely happened. The world was created in six days by the Word of God, recorded for us in Genesis, the first part of the book. The flood absolutely happened. It was an event in history where God deluged this whole world, as we read here, with water 15 cubits over the tallest mountain. And in Peter's... Uh, in his reference points of covenant history, he points to those two events and says, based on God's intervention in the past, live in light of those, there is a future coming judgment. These event oracles are both something that happened and something that teach. Event, history, oracle, word, word of God. So these events in history are pointed to to give us something of a pattern. An event oracle definition might be this. The word of God prophetically proclaimed in historical events, which set forth a pattern revealing his character and intentions. What is an event oracle? Like creation or like the flood? It is the word of God prophetically proclaimed in historical events, which sets forth a pattern revealing his character and intentions. And with respect to the flood, for instance, just as God judged the wicked world once before, so that sets forth his character, he is holy, his intentions of future judgment. Thus, you look at the flood and the evidence thereof, and you know with certainty that God has spoken, and therefore he will judge again, the final judgment. This is the way that this concept works. Peter warns us to never forget the reality and implications, therefore, of these things, creation, the flood. When we take seriously the testimony of the Lord's historical works in creation and judgment, we are reminded that there remains a future 
reckoning appointment upon his second coming and final judgment. Are you ready? Are you ready for the final judgment? That's Peter's concern for the church, calling all sincere minds. Know the difference between a scoffer and a sincere Christian. And by this means of reminder, I seek to stir you up so that whenever the Lord comes, be it a provisional judgment, like a storm that happens to take out a whole community, we evaded that narrowly this week, or the end of, the, of the, this age as the Lord wraps things up in the consummation of his kingdom, be it either one, if we take heed to Peter's words, we will be ready. Here's a heading. Fundamental distinctions for judging Christian sincerity. How do we know if we or someone else is a sincere Christian? Well, there's distinctions, there's differences between a scoffer and a sincere Christian. What are these fundamental distinctions? Well, according to Peter, I submit we can organize them in four categories. Number one, Christian intentions. Number two, the scoffer's intentions. And number three, deliberate denials by the scoffer. And then number four, counter-affirmations by the Christian. So there's a contrast. There's the Christian intentions that Peter exemplifies as the apostle, reasons for which he writes. And there's the scoffer's intentions, verses 3 through 4, reasons they do what they do. And then thirdly, there's deliberate denials. The scoffer remains blind. He refuses to acknowledge creation, flood, and judgment. And then finally, there's counter-affirmations. That is to say, not only do we accept those three as sincere Christians, but we do so recognizing three more things, and we'll get into that in due course. So the first fundamental difference or distinction for judging Christian sincerity, we look at the Apostle Peter and his example of Christian intentions. Perhaps the first thing we can note is a reason for which he writes, he loves his audience. Verse 1, 3, 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. I love these interjections where Peter moves from just incredible theology and sophisticated truth and doctrine to a personal touch, a connection of love and concern and care for his audience. He does this again in verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that the, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Peter loves his audience. He has recognized in them a like faith. In chapter 1, verse 1, to those, this is his audience whom he writes, to whom he writes, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Peter is filled with a sincere love for the beloved, and thus he exhorts them, thus he gives words of comfort, but also dire words of warning. He stirs them up by way of reminder that they may be ready for the day of the Lord. This makes sense when we consider the qualities that he has promoted. These would be the faith supplements we've talked about in chapter 1. He says in verse 5, For this reason make every effort to supplement your faith with the following. Then we have that list. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness. And then notice the last two. Brotherly affection and love. Peter takes the opportunity to address his readers, his audience, his congregation directly with the heart of a sincere gospel minister. Summed up in that one word, beloved, by his example, 
Peter's bringing sober warnings and direct exhortations motivated by those faith supplements that he had listed before, especially in 7 and 8, brotherly affection and love. In, in this, he's reiterating his heart and intentions. He had said in chapter 1, verse 12, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. And you see at the beginning of our passage today, similar words. This is the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved, reminding them that he loves them. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by, by way of reminder. Christian intentions, they're marked by sincere love. Christian intentions are also marked by Peter's purpose for writing to stir up the church. He says, in both of them, his first and second letter, we're not positive that that would be 1 Peter, or if there's additional letters to which he references. Suffice it to say, this occasion was so important that he has dedicated at least two letters, if not more, to addressing it. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Peter's purpose in writing, his, uh, the author's intent. For the reason for which he writes is so important that it is worthy, as we said, of at least two letters. The occasion and theme deserve to be addressed at a very high cost. Just historically, uh, this point is strengthened when we consider how expensive it was to even get paper, papyrus or whatever it was, or vellum in some cases, to write a letter by hand, painstakingly, and then the postal system. Of course, there were no airplanes then, right? It was delivered by way of great risk to one's own personal well-being on foot by a trusted servant. Now, the letter that that person carried, they must consider valuable enough to risk their life to go across Asia Minor, Cappadocia, you know, Galatia, Bithynia, to get all the way over to wherever these guys were and to give them the, these instructions by the apostle. But this was so important, the occasion was so pressing, and Peter's words to stir up the church were so needful that it was worthy of at least two, two letters. Why? Because he loved them so much and the stakes were so high. Christian intentions, sincere love, and Peter's purpose in writing to stir up sincere minds and a valuable cause worthy of great cost and sacrifice. So, <clears throat> stirring up sincere minds. Peter, uh, the use of the occasion and theme, uh, Peter's letter, or uh, use of Peter's letter could serve as a means of verification. Another way to say this, Peter's words to the scoffer would not prove effective moving, convincing, or important. The insincere scoffer would not find these words compelling, convincing, or impressive in any way. And the scriptures still serve this litmus test, by the way. Peter is giving in direct instructions, warning us of the wrath to come and the imminence of the Lord's judgment and commanding us to live in light of the reckoning perspective. If you just have a flippant attitude about that, and you don't take seriously these words, Peter's letter serves to demonstrate that you are a scoffer today, just as there were scoffers then. When this word was proclaimed, and people listened intently, leaned forward, and were struck with a sense of concern and imminent uh, danger, and they knew from the pressures around them that be, their uh, testimony to the cause of Christ would likely require a high cost. They would cling to these words. 
They would cling to the words that reminded them they could trust the God that created the world in the first place. And they could trust him that he was just since he had brought judgment in form of a flood on all of the known world at the time, all of the world except Noah and his family at the time of the great flood. They would cling to these words. They would provide for them assurance and security and hope and courage in the face of great trial and difficulty. But if these words were unconvincing and unimpressive as they were to the scoffers of that day, then they did not pass the test of Peter's purpose in writing. Therefore, Peter's words, the word of God, serves the same purpose today. It is a litmus test. It verifies who are those that fear the Lord and who are those that take lightly his words. This is a profile of a sincere mind, Peter says, living in light of creation, the flood, and final judgment. Many like the idea of Jesus Christ, but usually it's the idea that they've concocted in their own imagination. Jesus is who he is. He's not a mascot of your worldview, as I've often fond of saying. I think that's one of the biggest problems in the so-called Christianity or the self-styled religion of our hour. We've reduced Jesus Christ and his word to a mascot of our own preferences. I imagine Jesus to be super loving and, of course, like exactly how I want him, a sort of personalized, you know, slot machine Santa Claus type figure that is always accommodating and affirming of what I'd rather do anyways. That is blasphemy. That's a heart of a scoffing unbeliever that does not take seriously the revelation of the Lord and the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, in His fearful power and authority, His ability to judge, and thus His weighty and undeserving grace and mercy. To appreciate the shed blood on Calvary in full, we must realize that we deserved it, and we deserved it because we are sinners. But if we imagine Jesus smiling and giggling and laughing at us as if we can do nothing wrong, then we have concocted an idol in our own imagination. And blasphemy of blasphemies, we've named it Jesus Christ. God forbid. A profile of a sincere mind is to live in light of the Jesus revealed in Scripture and His works in creation and covenant history, His creation, the flood and final judgment. This is Peter's purpose for writing, to stir up the sincere minds, to draw attention to these perspective points so that the people might be set in a right frame of mind, that they might be prepared for whatever they face, and their witness would be sharp and bold and actually worthy of proclaiming so that people can truly see their sins, repent, and be added to the numbers of the Asia Minor church. This is a necessary reminder. What was the means that Peter uh, relies upon for stirring up? Well, verse 2, it says that you should remember. I am stirring you up by your, up your sincere mind by way of reminder. What is Peter reminding the church of? Verse 2, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Categorically, that would be the whole counsel of God. Predictions of the holy prophets, that would be the word of God. Everything that preceded, anticipated, and proclaimed Jesus before he came. What is the second category? That would be the commandment of the Lord and Savior, the commandments of Jesus through their apostles. That would be the New Testament, the record of Jesus coming in time and history, the record of his gospel proclaimed, and the application of that through his commissioned and anointed apostles, who are God-breathed to write scripture, even the scripture we read this morning. 
And so this is the necessary reminder. This is the means of stirring up the church. Remember what? Remember the whole counsel of God, the prophets of old, and the testimony of the apostles, the commandments of Jesus Christ, mediated or given to you by his inspired apostles. And as Peter does this, what does he intend to remind the church of? The bedrock standard and foundation of discernment in an age of deception and distraction. How can the church be equipped, our aim statement for this morning, for discernment in an age of delusional unbelief? Only when we appreciate and have a growing understanding of all the, count, the whole counsel of God, the predictions of the holy prophets, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior that we've received through his apostles, the Old and New Testaments. So Christian intentions, they distinguish a sincere believer from a scoffer. What are the intentions on the flip side of the coin of the scoffer? Well, Peter reveals these, and masks them, if you will, in verses 3 and 4. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Their own sinful desires. Primary motive force. Why does the unbeliever do what he does? Well, you get down past the, you know, the informal reason. You get down to the true cause, the true motive that makes the sinner tick, and it is his own self-centered, idolatrous, lustful, vengeful, and however many other sinful ways uh, that his mind and his intentions fall into, his sinful desires are his primary motive. Verse 4, they will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Uh, one of my... A favorite illustrations of rebellious obstinance comes by way of a temper tantrum in a two or three year old. So kids, maybe some of your little sisters or brothers have done this. You probably did it when you were their age, so don't be too judgmental. But have you ever seen a kid that is so mad and so upset and so rebellious against his parents, the authority figure in his life, that he sticks his fingers in his ears and, and yells babble at the top of his lungs, blah, 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 I can't hear you, blah, 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 that kind of thing. That's the kind, so someone who does that shows themselves to be an obstinate fool. But in the moment, they believe that they are powerful and in charge. They're captain of their destiny. They control their will, thank you, and no one else is going to tell them what to do. Well, the unbeliever never grows out of this phase. It just becomes more sophisticated in its expression. No less petulant, no less childish, no less obnoxious before the Lord of glory. God says, thou shalt not kill. Blah, 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 blah. I have a right to an abortion. Blah, blah, blah. And the unbeliever and the screeching feminist critic of God's law shouts from the footsteps of the Supreme Court and screams petulantly from the streets of the abortion clinic, demanding that they have the right to take the life of their unborn child within their womb. It's one example. You know, you shall not uh, take, you shall not commit adultery. I can do whatever I want, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like consent is the only thing that's required for a good relationship. And then you go off into this hookup culture or college or the low moral expectations of our day. Live a life of catering to the lust of the flesh with your fingers in your ears, pretending that treading on what God has said is sacred and holy and bound within the framework of covenant is just yours to play with and to throw around like so, like, uh, so much uh, cheap, so many uh, cheap toys, you know, made in China, 
just there to have your birthday party be a whole lot of fun. And so these are ways that we in our rebellion, the scoffer in his rebellion, sticks his finger in his ears, thumbs his face at God Almighty, takes lightly what God has said as holy and reverent, and has prescribed within his created order to specific areas and so forth, and he scoffs. And he manifests this in his intentions. Now this phenomenon, Peter says, is going to happen in the last days. This raises the question, when are the last days? Well, the answer is pretty clear. You just have to go back to 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, and you get an idea what Peter means. 1 Peter 1.20, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. Raised him, who, uh, through him, our believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So for Peter, the last days is not some apocalyptic future where things get especially bad. The last days are the time from the point of Jesus' ascension unto glory and the church going forth. This is a different era now, a different historical era. And it is in this era, these last days, so to speak, that Peter addresses the church. And therefore, his words are as relevant then as they are now. Jesus Christ has ascended to rule and reign, and there yet re- remains this summons, this reckoning, that final day, we don't know when it is, over all of the world. And in the meantime, the gospel call goes forth to live in light of a sovereign God who can do something about your sin and has done something to redeem you, but only if you would turn and accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. And if not, He will do something about your sin on that day of your own death or final judgment when that reckoning appointment arrives. So these scoffing intentions by the um, undiscerning, by the delusional unbeliever, by the insincere scoffer, they're a church age phenomenon, if you will. What is the purpose of the scoffing? What is the purpose of manufacturing reasons to disregard the word of God? Well, it's pretty simple. Verse 3 Follow their own sin, to follow their own sinful desires, people do these things. Contrast this with Peter's intentions. Peter intends to stir up the church by way of reminder, to do so at the cost of his own life and limb. He is de- uh, determined in chapter 1. He says, I think it is right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. Peter's life has been transformed. His goals have been revolutionized. Peter no longer lives his life so that he can get maximum happiness given the resources at his immediate disposal on a day-to-day basis. No, he has surrendered to Christ. He has died to the flesh. He has laid down his life. He has taken up his cross, and God has reformed his heart and desires. And now he is motivated as a sincere believer and an apostle to up until the point of his death, make it his aim and life's goal not to seek his own happiness, not to pursue so far as it's socially acceptable, his own sinful desires, but to stir the church up by way of reminder. In contrast to Peter's apostolic example of sincere Christian intentions, we have here listed very clearly what motivates us in the flesh before we surrender to Christ. We simply follow our own sinful desires. And this motivates us to come up with excuses to not take seriously the word of God. Here's an example, verse 4. 
They will say, where is the promise of his coming? So you Christians say Jesus is coming again? Well, haven't there been books written about that since the day, since the day these words were spoken? And so the skepticism and the cynicism, is a lot, or you can hear it in the voice and the tone of the unbeliever. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Dismissing the promises and the word of God based on their own experience. I don't see any major change. I don't see any reason to believe that Jesus is coming back again. I don't see any reason to believe in those myths and the uh, musings of a Bronze Age goat herding people, the way the unbeliever mischaracterizes the authors of Scripture. This is the cynical skepticism of unbelief. It's the bad faith and insincere argument of the unbeliever. I have an excuse not to believe. I don't see any good evidence. I don't have reason to take seriously the Word of God. Is that true? It is not. The Word of God itself proclaims as much. Paul, in another place, chapter 1 of the book of Romans, proclaims that even if the unbeliever did not hold the physical Word of God in his hands, which virtually everyone, at least in America, has opportunity to do, even on his phone, he would still be without excuse. You'll, re you'll recall these words, no doubt, in Romans 1.18. This is an indictment against those who, in their cynical skepticism, claim that they have good reason to doubt the Word and the certainty of the Gospel. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who in their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So the truth can be known and is known and is proclaimed even throughout creation. Yet because of what Peter describes as the motive towards sinful desires, man finds complicated and complex and sophisticated sounding ways, that secular sophistry, that veneer of intellectual respectability that paints over their foolishness, he uses those kinds of things to suppress the truth. But Paul goes on, verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. There is no good faith argument against believing what God has spoken. All these arguments are in bad faith because... Mankind in his sin and with the revelation of God even available in his natural world is without excuse. Do we have any excuse? Think of this week on Monday, a storm ripped through and we all remember where we were when those trees started to fall because it was quite traumatic, right? Some of you were driving, 40 plus of us were huddled in our house. And I remember yelling, trees are starting to fall. And then... Parents frantic, where's so-and-so, where's so-and-so? And that shot of adrenaline that every parent of a little kid knows, worried that they're unaccounted for. You know, the kids were on the zip line. Fifteen minutes later, the trees were on the zip line. That's the way I've been describing how suddenly and powerfully this storm was whipped up on Monday. This is an example of the power of God to judge. We can look at forces of nature and realize in our fallenness and in our wickedness, we deserve a tree leveling our property and leveling us. And we know from Monday that God has the power to do so. What did we do? We took pictures on our phone. We shared the stuff we saw on Facebook. Someone had spotted a tornado. And I linked a picture of two boat lifts upside down, wheels in the air, and nothing but the bottom sides of the pontoons, you know, there as proof that God and his sovereign power which is a breath of his nostrils, can level the playing field 
of recreational northern Minnesota. We've seen it time and again. We are without excuse. The scriptures say that God brought storms of cataclysmic proportions in the past to tell us that he has the power to judge and he will come again in judgment. And if we have no ark, if we have no means of salvation, if we have no safe place to go, there's coming a time when even kings and people in authority will cry out for the rocks to crush them sooner that they would be annihilated, hoping that they would be annihilated rather than face the wrath of God on that final day. That glimpse of God's power that we saw by way of storm on Monday is nothing, nothing compared to the great flood of old. And the great flood of old was an event oracle. It was a, mood, it was a work of God in history that proclaims his intentions in the end, that he will come, there will be a decisive day. And on that day, all wickedness will be judged. There is no excuse Nevertheless, the scoffing intentions of the insincere unbeliever invent ways to be cynical and skeptical, but none of this will stand on that final day before the court of glory when the cross-examination of the omnipotent, the cross-examination of the omniscient one submits them to answer for themselves on that great day. Number three, the scoffer's deliberate denials. There's fundamental distinctions between or the scoffer and the sincere Christian. And one of these differences is the scoffers deliberately deny three things. We've mentioned them before, but verses 5 through 6 chronicle them. Verse 5, for they, the scoffer, deliberately overlooks this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water. The scoffer remains rebellious, insolent, and against the Lord in his unbelieving, delusional frame of mind. He remains in that frame because he denies that he lives in a world created by a sovereign God. If it is God that has given you the food on your plate, the breath in your lungs, this corporal form that you enjoy to interact in the environment in which he has placed you, then you owe that God something, do you not? It is at his mercy, pleasure, it is by his good grace and steadfast love and loving kindness that you were born in the first place and that you exist today and that he spared you from that storm on Monday to arrive and worship with his people. These are reminders for the sincere to thank God that we are fearfully and wonderfully made in his image. Marvelous are his works, and to those who recognize as much by the Spirit opening up their once blind eyes, they, we know them right well. We have proof when we look in the mirror. We have proof when we look at each other, proof when we look at this world. Yet the unbeliever, the scoffer deliberately denies creation. Creation, the fact that God in his sovereign intentions, by a work of supernatural intervention, spoke ex nihilo, Latin, out of nothing, this world into existence with nothing to work with but his own will and word, that fact is absolutely fundamental. It's a fundamental doctrine of the Christian worldview. And the scoffer denies it. And you modify and twist and conform that doctrine at great peril to your soul. Think of the great confused and ever-growing and absurd conclusions gender, gender identity movement today. We're running out of characters in the alphabet to serve as an acronym for the self-definition gender identity movement LGBTQ and it goes on ad infinitum. Why does this happen? Well, it's because we deny creation. 
If creation is true, then what Jesus said is correct. In the beginning, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his family and the two shall become one flesh. If creation is a sovereign act by a sovereign God who prescribes by that means the order and our identity, then the LGBTQ movement, et cetera, et cetera, cannot exist. Do you see? And this is so-called Pride Month or whatever we call it. Isn't it just like a sinful, rebellious people to double down in their sin and claiming that that which we should experience a shameless, a shamefulness about, we now have a shameless forehead of the whore, you know, as the prophets called it and paraded it in the streets. You know, this nation deserves to be destroyed. This nation deserves the judgment of God. We have paraded in the streets the very reason why the flood came in the first place, because at much greater extent, presumably than now, these lies of the enemy and this perversion that has been sold at the expense of the created order is now celebrated as virtue. This is a real problem. What would repentance look like? Acknowledging that God made us in the first place, that we are his, that we owe our identity and our existence to a sovereign, almighty God who has ordered this world according to his will and intentions. We're made in his image for his glory and purposes, and we alter those at the cost of our own soul, the cost of our society, and the cost of the great coming judgment one day. We must repent. Yet those who are scoffers deliberately deny creation, and we see that in these various movements that we've mentioned before. Of course, abortion is similar. The disregard for innocent and unborn human life can only happen if the doctrine of creation is disregarded. If, uh, if the formation of a human being in the womb of a mother is not an act of God sovereignly ordered and is nothing spectacular but merely a function of processes and chemical reactions, if we are reduced to just a, you know, an impersonal mass of our own cellular biology, then maybe they have a point. But if you're made in the image of God, and if the, your body systems and the procreation means that God has deployed for human beings to create more in the image of Him Almighty, then we better proceed with fear. Because we take lightly that which God has said is holy. This is a judgment-deserving posture, position of mind, worldview. And so we must repent and acknowledge that we were created in the first place. Secondly, the flood. The scoffer deliberately denies the flood in verse 6. And that by means of these, that is water, the world that then existed was deluged, that means flooded with water, and perished. Once again, this event oracle, the world that then existed, this language, the world that then existed, is specifically chosen by Peter to demonstrate that so thorough, so devastating, so decisive, and so revolutionary was this act of judgment that that which, the world, that, that that which uh, Noah welcomed after the floods receded was called a different world entirely. There was such a big change that it is referred to in recreation terms. Such a big change that the Noahic promise and the rainbow assured us that this kind of whole-scale destruction and judgment will not occur again until perhaps you could say the final day. Suffice it to say, it serves as, as we've said, an event oracle. The fact that God has judged the world before reminds us that he will judge it again. Evidence of this whole-scale cataclysmic destruction is all around us. There's nowhere in in geology or the study of the natural sciences that you can escape evidence of the flood. But neo-Darwinian micro-mutational evolutionary theory, you know, that there's an example of secular sophistry for you as a concoction out of the scoffers, uh, you know, uh, 
sinfully dedicated imagination to deny what is clearly available in the fossil record for us. Was it a great flood or was it a Cambrian explosion? Was there punctuated equilibrium where species uh, entirely different from the last spontaneously burst onto the scene or did God create each class of animal according to his sovereign design? Is the, is the uh, continuity that we see between species evidence of a, the same creator or evidence of the same natural processes by way that uh, introduced all of the creatures to us in the first place? Those who are motivated by sinful desires will scoff and they will say, what is the promise of his coming? All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Submit to you, that's what macro evolution teaches, that we're here by virtue of natural processes. And so what does that deny? Denies creation and the flood. And for though, instead of heeding that evidence of God's sovereign power to judge, we come up with another explanatory hypothesis. Do you think that will fly on the day of God's appointment? When the unbeliever and the scoffer and the sinner is subpoenaed before the, the throne of glory? Oh, I, I thought the Grand Canyon was evidence of like the earth being here for like billions of years because that river created over so, so much time. I didn't realize that you had made everything and then a great flood came and washed it out in a matter of minutes. No, he will be without excuse. Finally, final judgment. A scoffer deliberately denies in verse, six, uh, verse 7. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. You know, there are social justice movements today that ask of the state that which is God's prerogative. There are so many movements out there that will not rest until all the balances of injustice are righted. God has given very limited ability to the state, to the government collective, to address issues of justice. But what gives us the assurance that we can live in this life, even though justice will always be an approximation and our systems, as good as they may be, will always be imperfect and you will never have, by mere human, an omniscient, an omnipotent judge, untrue, unbiased. Well, what gives you consolation in spite of this reality in a fallen world is final judgment. If there is no God, a perfect, one with perfect knowledge and perfect wisdom, then you have to hope and pray for a perfect government to give you justice. And you will die in your anxiety, never reaching that goal. And the closer the government tries to, to get, the more horrific the consequences will be of trying. And if the last century teaches us anything to the tune of hundreds of millions of dead bodies. What is missing here? This kind of atrocity, this kind of idolatry, this kind of secular sophistry, this kind of whole-scale devasta devastation and, and communism at the expense of Holocaust only happens when you deny final judgment. Answering to a sovereign God in the future and trusting that his justice is perfect. So you don't have to manufacture a God out of whole cloth among sinners. A God that will exercise you know, that authority and power you give him in devastating ways, advancing himself in his own sinful desires, creating this uh, tyrannical political class. So these are deliberate denials. Yet encountering these, we have our last point today, fundamental distinctions, judging Christian sincerity. Christian intentions are moved by sincerity, sincere love, and a purpose of, that's motivated by the gospel and a reminder of the word of God. Scoffing intentions... They seek a convoluted ways to advance their own sinful desires. They deliberately deny the very things that God has done in history and spoken in his word. But the Christian counters with affirmations, verses 8 through 10. 
But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that the Lord, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The scoffer says things have, be, have continued as they were from the beginning. I don't see any evidence that God is sovereign over America right now. Look at all this wickedness that he allows to just run rampant. Well, you're using your finitude and your timetable. This is what man does, by the way. In his finitude, and that means he can't see everything, you know, just limited by his experience and his observations, he projects onto God his own handicap, his own psychological deficiencies, and then say, well, if I were God, I would do something by now. Uh, that something by now I was hoping for hasn't been done, therefore there is no God. Oh, see what you're doing there? You're measuring God by yourself, you fool. Repent. God's ways are not your ways. His timing is not your timing. And God is not required to bow to your timetable. A thousand years is as a day for the Lord. He operates according to his sovereign terms. And the sincere Christian recognizes this, and it gives him great patience, even in an age of rampant unbelief. We can continue faithful to proclaim the truth, even if it seems like God has delayed a long time. In the grand scope of things, from the reckoning perspective, a thousand years is like that to the mind of the Lord. And his purposes for this world, our lives, and the cosmos... Verse 9, Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, but as, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Not only do we trust in prophetic timing, and, and these, are, uh, these are affirmations that we counter the ungodly with, but we also trust in God's redemptive patience. We recognize that though America deserves to be wiped out in an atom bomb in an instant, that God nevertheless spares us. Why? Because there's yet souls to be saved in Cross Lake, Minnesota, we trust. There's yet souls to be saved in our nation. And if God spares us the judgment we deserve because of his redemptive patience, let us be encouraged to all the more boldly make good use of today to proclaim life and salvation in Christ alone. This is why God waits. This is why he delays his judgment and this is the perspective that Peter is encouraging the church with. He says, remember in verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, when the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So yes, God waits in his patience to save the lost, but when he does come, it comes suddenly. The day when you least expect it, with everything to lose. That's what the day of the Lord looks like for the unbelieving scoffer. The day when you least expect it with everything to lose. We've experienced some tragedies <clears throat> lately among those we know and connected to this church in some way. All of a sudden, Pastor Stanley in Mexico succumbed to death. Praise God. He was ushered because of the power of the blood of Jesus into the presence of the Lord Almighty. But that was a surprise to his family, to his friends, to his church, to his loved ones. Gina Marissa flew down there to be some help and encouragement and cons consolation in this time of great loss. Death comes like a thief in the night, and the only ones who are prepared for it are the ones who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior through death. If you, like Pastor Stanley, find your soul hid in the ark Christ Jesus, then on that day when suddenly, without warning, the Lord arrives, whether in your own death or at that day of His appointment, that day of reckoning, that final judgment one day, you will not be caught flat-footed, but you will be assured of safe passage because of the Lord. So we make good use of the time as proclaiming this. In the meantime, God is ultimate over history. 
The reckoning day of the Lord will arrive for the scoffer, the day when he least expects it, and he will have everything to lose. But for us, that day will be salvation. Remember, as we said before, depending on the orientation of your heart, the day of the Lord is either that welcoming red carpet of salvation unto the presence of the Lord in glory, or it's that signal of the ark door closing and the waters of judgment rising around your neck until it finally snuffs out every rebel in the day of Noah. That's what it's going to be like in that final day. Where is your heart today? Do you have that assurance of salvation in Christ? You know, one day the Lord will come, whether it's for us individually, judgment as a nation, or on that final day. One day the Lord will come and two things will happen. For the unbeliever, for the scoffer, for the insincere, for the one who denied him, though he was without excuse, he will be thrown along with the demons who deceived him and Satan himself into the lake of fire to burn. It's a testimony to God's glory and justice forever. But for us, saints, if you know Jesus Christ, on that same day, we will sit down at table fellowship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The table spread with that which represents his very sacrifice to reunite us with the Holy God. This meal that we celebrate today, it signals the assurance of peace and reconciliation with the Lord, the Holy One, who requires a just payment for sin. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no atonement for the same. But through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and His shed blood and His broken body, that day, that final day, will be for us a red carpet unto sitting down at table fellowship in what we call, through John's vision, the marriage supper of the Lamb. So as Peter gives us instructions, he draws the lines sharp and clear. He, he points out the difference between the insincere scoffer and the sincere Christian. And I beg you, as you have heard the words spoken in your ears today, to search your own heart. And if you find that reassuring Holy Spirit sense of peace, knowing that Christ is your Savior and Lord, as you have turned from your sin and trusted in Him, the table is open to you. But I beg you, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you do not have that assurance that His blood washes away your transgressions, do not come to this table. There remains yet in front of it cherubim, so to speak, with flaming sword guarding the presence of God. And let that be a reminder that only through Christ can you have reconciliation with Him. And I beg you, in the sound of my preaching, to turn from your sin and to turn to Jesus Christ. You are without excuse, and the only way of salvation is through Christ. The same Christ that forgave Peter, who one time had denied him, and now, as, as evidenced in this book, is laying down his life for the cause of the gospel. Let us transition in prayer. Father, we thank you for the message of your scripture, for the assurance of your holy word, and for the opportunity to fellowship in light of its glorious truth. I pray that you would bind us to yourself, Lord, all the tighter as we partake in this meal today for those who are believers in this room. For those who may not know you, I pray that you would bring the reality of your day, that reckoning perspective, Lord, to their attention so that they would turn from their sin and turn to Jesus Christ. In all of this, may you be glorified and magnified. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning.